There are a lot of specialties within the very broad vocation of software engineering, and all of them are hard to do. Distributed systems engineering is one corner of the discipline that poses a particular set of challenges. What's it like to build a distributed system? What special problems arise? How do you land a job doing it? And that's the conversation on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Streaming Audio. I am your host, Tim Berglund, and I'm joined today in the virtual studio by my coworker, uh, Guazhong Wang. Guazhong, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim, for having me. You bet. So you are a tech lead in the what we'll call the streaming department uh, in engineering here at Confluent. Is that right? That's right. Awesome. So I want to talk to you today. I mean, honestly, I'd like to talk to you about some of that stuff, see if we can dig into some K-SQL sure, DB yeah. things. But this is a part of our series on being a distributed systems engineer. And so mm -hmm. um, before we get to that stuff, I want to ask you kind of just a little bit about how you came to do what you do and mm -hmm. your thoughts on distributed systems engineering as, as a separate discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is that you know there are people who think it sounds like a really cool thing to do, mm -hmm. and you want to talk them out of that. Uh, no, you don't. You don't want to talk them out of it. Yeah. Uh, you want to encourage those people because yes. it is it is actually a really fun branch of engineering. We just like to give people an idea of what it's like. So um, what do you think um, the, the, you work in, in streaming and you can elaborate on that a little bit if you want, but uh, what makes it interesting to you? Um, well, I think actually the most interesting part for, you know, working as a infra engineer, especially like for you know distributed you know environment infra engineer, is that you basically have to deal with all kinds of failure scenarios, right? Or more be more general, you basically have to deal with all kinds of hardware um, you know issues that uh, you know in a single node uh, environment, it's you know much less likely to happen. I think that actually is the one of the most challenging, but also very you know I would say professional satisfying you know cha uh, challenge that uh, I'm actually enduring from, from day to day. That's interesting. That really has come up in a lot of these. Um, dealing with failures and dealing with state, those are really the two themes that emerge exactly. as the, the primary challenges of distributed yeah. systems. Yes. And uh, actually, you know, I can maybe talk a little bit more about like dealing with failures. Like one inferred topic out of that is how we actually can achieve agreements from multiple nodes that is, you know, connected in a cluster, but uh, the connection you know, in practice, is most likely asynchronous, right? Uh, right? I remember in my graduate study, there is like uh, you know topic from my uh, from my university at Cornell called you know the replicated state machine, and that is actually like years of research trying to understand like what scenarios can we actually achieve with you know some assumptions under you know practical environment, and uh, so because of the various failures that we are we have to deal with how to achieve agreement, like for example, in Kafka, how to achieve the logs that is replicated across different replicas are consistent and agree to each other is actually a very challenging part. And if we assume that there's no failures, i.e. it's like you know, failure-free, then actually it will be a much simpler uh, problem to solve. Right, but that uh, assumption is not gonna hold in a practical yeah, environment. Of course. Things are going to break. So yeah, dealing with failure, and, and you were just describing coming to consensus about state yes. uh, is, is sort of what you're, uh, 
what you're preoccupied with doing. So what, uh, you, uh, tell us about your background a little bit. You know, how did your career prepare you to do this work that you're doing now and uh, educational background and, and everything? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually got my uh, PhD in computer science, but, uh, you know, the specialty area is in, you know, databases from, um, from Cornell University. And that's where I actually start to study in distributed systems. And, um, and actually, you know, a bunch of, you know, the professors, including my own advisor, actually have shown me, you know, basically various, you know, you know, very interesting and the typical problems that has been, you know, under study and has been researched in the past years. But most of them is, you know, what I, we do on research on paper. We basically build a prototype to demonstrate some of the ideas. What actually really intrigued me to basically look into the real world problems is when I actually, uh, you know, joined LinkedIn as an intern first, but then as a uh, full time. I joined LinkedIn and I work on Kafka, which is actually my first uh, project of, uh, out of graduate, st- uh, graduate schools. Because at LinkedIn, you know, back in 2012, Kafka has already been widely adopted and with a massive deployment. And at that time, I have to say, you know, uh, the stableness of Kafka is actually the crucial part for the whole site, for LinkedIn website and for the whole company. Because once Kafka is not stable, for example, if it has unavailability issues or some of the logs are diverged, you know, everyone knows. Because the CEO watched some, you know, dashboards, you know, Jeff basically watched on those ones which are de- basically dependent on Kafka delivering those data. So, and there's like a lot of the, the real world, you know, issues, like what I mentioned about like all kinds of hardware failures that you have to deal with and you have to try to auto heal from them so that, uh, you know, the, the company, the site uh, is all stable. So that's actually where I started to uh, realize, you know, both, you know, the challenging, but also like the very interesting problems uh, that you need to look into, especially from a real world uh, life uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, I suppose um, it might be a good enough approach to failure in an application, depending upon the scale and the user community and your relationship with them. It might yeah. be good enough when something goes wrong, say, to log a stack trace and expect or hope that the user retries. Yes, uh, totally. And then, then it'll yeah. be okay. But uh, here in infrastructure, um, you have to be that layer of this always works. That's right. Uh, so that you're not a source of those exceptions yes. uh, for applications to application developers to deal with. Yeah. So Kafka was the first system that you, uh, first distributed system that you worked on, and it's it's still directly or indirectly the system you work on. Yeah. Um, what do you think makes it interesting? I mean, you talked about how it gets used at LinkedIn, and mm-hmm. you know we can all assume we know what Kafka does if we're listening mm-hmm. to this podcast. But um, what is interesting about it to you? Well, I think the most part that is interesting about me is to really consider about how you know basically data persistence really coming to play in a distributed, distributed environment. Um, just to give you some context, like before Kafka was introduced, right? Uh, I linked in and I believe actually a lot of other you know, companies in Bay Area at that time, you know, we have actually also you know, tried a lot of the messaging systems, which are primarily based on in-memory, uh, in-memory data structures, basically. And uh, they actually can give you pretty good uh, you know, efficiency but, uh, you know, when it comes to, like, uh, availability, you know, durability, uh, and also, like, especially in messaging system, where we have this particular question about how we basically deal with back pressure, meaning that when the consumer cannot keep up with the traffic that producer is, you know, generating. 
you know, in memory data structures does have this limit. And the Kafka at that time, you know, I'm talking about back in, you know, maybe 2010, 11, or 12, was the first idea that basically introduced, you know, persistence, basically meaning that we persist the data uh, as log structures uh, on the Kafka brokers before they are being, you know, consumed by the consumers. And that actually is a, you know, is a very, uh, you know, I, you know, at that time is a very interesting idea to me because I have been working in databases, which basically are dealing with persistence for a long time. And uh, the rule of the thumb is that, uh, you know, hard disks is uh, never going to compete with in-memory in -memory storage when you come to efficiency, right? But actually, you know, when we are, you know, working with persistent data storage in the right way, right? For example, in Kafka, we use, we try our best to do batching, to do sequential uh, reads and writes. You know, persistence is not as expensive as we usually thought. I think that is, a, you know, the first, you know, impression and the first, you know, interesting, you know, idea that I encountered when I was first looking to Kafka architecture. And what kind of problems does persistence introduce once you start writing things on disk? Mm -hmm. um, you said that the performance hit isn't as bad as you think, and obviously mm -hmm. you have to do things to optimize. And you mentioned sequential writes and trying to be smart about what sorts of buffers you copy and, and do things in a way that will use the page cache efficiently. And right. there's all the IO stuff, but what happens in terms of, of state management in the system? What mm -hmm. gets hard when you start writing things on disk? Uh, I think, you know, writing things on disk itself is not that hard. Um, you know, as long as you try to, you know, batch enough data and you want to basically do everything in sequential. What actually is hard is basically how to maintain the metadata of it. Because in order to do things like sequentially, right, uh, meaning that, you know, for, from a single producer, if you are sending data, uh, like, which contains, you know, a bunch of records, you know, you're potentially writing those bunch of records into the same broker so that you can achieve the batching effects and you can achieve sequential writes. But writing them all to the same broker, meaning that at least get, have a, at a given time, um, you are basically having a single writer, meaning that, you know, you are not, you know, you know, uh, scattered the writes across multiple brokers, right? So when, you know, those data have to be rebalanced because, you know, various issues, because you basically scale out your cluster or you scale down your cluster, or there are some, you know, error happened and you have to basically fill over, how you basically maintain the metadata consistently so that all the clients will basically learn about the metadata. For example, who will be the new broker that I should talk to? in order to you know, produce data or consume from it, and what range of you know, the, the produced data is available on the broker. I think that is actually a pretty challenging part that uh, oh, basically yeah. result from this, from this design. How, what, what, message is, what message should be readable? What offset should yes. be readable based on how replication has worked? And that's, so yeah, metadata. That's coming to consensus about metadata like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, fair point. We should know how to write things to disk and, and sort of make that work. But um, you are still, and this is always a subtlety that I, I try to grapple with. Events are immutable. And so, you know, from an application architecture perspective, uh, sharing topics between microservices is a not terrible thing to do because it, we're basically sharing immutable data structures. And that's, a, a, in general, a safer thing to do yeah. than sharing mutable ones. Of course, topics themselves or partitions themselves are mutable because we we append to them. You know, we put things in them. Yep. And it's Kafka's job to to um, 
come to consensus around that mutable state. Yes. Uh, the state being what's in a topic. Yeah. And I also like to just bring up like this is like the newest, you know, updates from the Kafka community because this mutable metadata, uh, we used to basically store, you know, basically like the, the most critical ones of them on Zookeeper. And the recently we are actually working towards a Zookeeper free architecture where we actually maintain the metadata, which are, you know, mutable metadata. And uh, they are, you know, some of them can be actually much frequently updated as well from Zookeeper to Kafka logs as well. So you can imagine the, the Kafka log structure now will actually be used for both maintaining the, you know, the data as well as the metadata of it. Nice. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, that's building Kafka out of Kafka and using, using uh, topics to yeah, exactly. distribute yeah. metadata. Right. Yeah. Kafka always tries to build Kafka out of Kafka. So I'm glad that this is a part of the broader KIP 500 effort uh, uh, to, use, to use topics in that way, because it just seems like the way we do things. Yeah. Um, how about if just back up and think about distributed systems engineering? It's kind of what you've done. You know, mm -hmm. you got uh, a PhD in uh, a related field, and it's, it's what you've done your whole career since your original internship. And you're doing it now as an engineering lead. What? So uh, this this might be hard because it's the thing you've done. Mm -hmm. And what I want to ask is, uh, how is it different from say being a full stack application engineer of the the sort that are most of the people who build things on Kafka? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was me ten years ago. The last time I was I had a, a just a pure engineering role. Mm -hmm. um, I was a full stack developer, and obviously mm -hmm. there was not a lot of Kafka then. There was still a lot of um, you know, basically monolithic course, application yeah. architectures. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I was, I was your basic full stack Java web developer. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference? Do you think, what are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what are the properties you're looking for mm -hmm. in a distributed systems engineer? Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe I can talk about that from just like how we, how, how I personally like, you know, talk to, you know, candidates for, Full stack engineer versus you know infra engineer during you know our hiring process at at Confluent. So I think for for full stack engineers, right? Uh, usually, you know, basically what we talk with them and you know during some you know exercise on technical designs or coding exercises, what we are looking at is like how you basically can um, how to put it like how to you can basically understand what is off the shelf for you, like different tools, different systems and how you can stitch them together and leverage what is actually available to you to basically solve specific questions, right? So particularly, like, if you want to build something from scratch, like, you know, uh, we say, oh, if you want to build, uh, you know, you know uh, link shortener from scratch, you can actually say, oh, I want to use a, you know, non-SQL database, right? I want to use Cassandra, or I want to use other systems. And you understand what actually Cassandra or other system can provide to you in terms of, you know, persistency in terms of durability, uh, you know, in terms of high, uh, uh, you know, data replication uh, properties, things like that. And you basically use that and you may actually stitch multiple of those systems of the, of the shelf and you basically build them together to, uh, you know, achieve your goal. Whereas for, for, for infra engineers, you are actually the developer of, you know, Cassandra. You are the developer of Kafka. So you you basically cannot say, oh, I can just assume that there are some other underlying system which provides those properties off the shelves for me. Uh, you basically have to build those, you know, provided properties yourself. I think that is 
you know, basically, especially from the, you know, from my personal hiring um, uh, experience, what we are actually looking, you know, differently for candidates in um, in full stack engineer versus infra engineers. Gotcha. So, um, and that that really goes to being an infrastructure engineer, a distributed infrastructure engineer, uh, in particular. You are building the infrastructure, so you don't get to integrate. Uh, these nice pieces, the, mm-hmm. the pieces that you get to integrate are like, okay, raft is a thing. Yeah. We're going to build our own raft implementation. Right. Uh, it's not, we need a distributed database. Oh, here's Cassandra. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, if you will, the privilege of the full stack engineer who gets to take advantage of the, the universe of infrastructure options of, yeah. of which of course. And of course, Kafka actually is one. <laughs> yeah. Leveraging off the shelf systems and, you know, Stitching them together and to actually achieving your specific goals is also, you know, very challenging. Right? Yes, so, I was um, just going to say that. Yeah, um, that's um, that's uh, very much a specialty and requires, you know, broad knowledge of the things that are available, which mm-hmm. is a constantly moving target. Right? There's this this real ongoing, continuing education thing that you have to do to know what are the pieces out there. Yes. that other people are using and that are being successful and that are that are the current state of the art. That's yep. kind of where you want to live or somewhere near there. Yep. Um, and so that's uh, that's a challenge, I think, for that skill set is being good at knowing what those pieces are, understanding mm-hmm. enough about them, and then integrating them. Yep. Um, and then on the, the infrastructure side, it's, well, you're, you're building all that. <laughs> yes. And in fact, actually, you know, if you're looking to the Kafka community, right, many of the contributors to Kafka are actually not like you know 100% full time developer of kafka but like users of kafka so exactly. you basically leverage on kafka but you actually also know a lot about kafka internals and you you know them so well so that sometimes you find some issues you can actually you know fix them yourself and contribute back to the community so i think this is also pretty valuable uh, you know characteristics for you know uh, any engineer either in infra or in full stack Yes, that's such a good point. I occasionally have this conversation. You're an Apache Kafka PMC member, yes? Yes. Yes. Uh, so not just a committer, but a PMC member. Uh, so uh, sometimes when you know when I'm talking to you and we say community, it's easy to think, well, community of the people who are building Kafka with me. So you know, some of your coworkers are Confluent and uh, colleagues who work for other companies who are committers and PMC members for Kafka. Like that's a community mm-hmm. um, of the people who build it. There's a much bigger community of the people who use it, yes. Um, and you know that's well, that's what this podcast is all about: is is helping take care of those people and helping them um, understand the ecosystem better and um, kind of where know where things are going. And that's that's a, a big set of concerns. Mm-hmm. And most of those people are never going to open up a PR. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's just not how life works. You, it's hard enough to get to know the infrastructure in terms of its API and operational surface area and do your dang job building things with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so both both uh, important definitions of community. I appreciate that you highlighted that. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, not submitting a PI is totally fine. Sometimes just creating a ticket, reporting, oh, I encountered some problems. I suspect maybe it's due to, you know, some of the bugs in Kafka or some of the designs in Kafka. That is equally helpful and that is equally highly valued in, in the community as well. You don't nice. really need to pro- provide a solution as long as you can provide some issues or report some issues that you observe. That is also very helpful. Everybody, I want you to hear that. Guizhong is a PMC member and he wants you to open a JIRA. 
Um, now, look, everybody, you know, there are good JIRAs and there are bad JIRAs. It's nice to do your homework. It's nice to be specific and have some evidence of what you think the problem is as much as you can. But uh, the the core folks are, are uh, very eager to hear your feedback if something seems to be not right. Definitely. So yes. Don't hesitate. Um, if we, you know, since I have you here, can we dig into some of the KSQL DB stuff you do? Oh, of course. Yeah. I would love yeah, to. That's, so, a, that's a thing that I, you know, started working on since I joined Confluent. Yeah. Why that? Why, first of all, why did you get into that? Uh, yeah, actually, it's a pretty interesting uh, question to, um, for me to uh, ask myself as well. So I, uh, you know, when I was about to join Confluent, I was already working at Kafka and uh, I lived in for almost three years. Um, and I basically work on Kafka course, including like the replication layer, some of the security features, you know, throttling mechanisms, things like that. And, uh, you know, to me at that time, uh, my, my thinking is that Kafka as a storage engine, uh, you can consider that as like, you know, the, you know, the DF, uh, HDFS in real time world, right? So HDFS is for batch processing. Kafka is for, you know, real time streaming, but it's, they are mainly for storage. And at that time, I believe like, you know, uh, Jay, June, Neha, they already have ideas that, you know, we should really, you know, grow up in the software stack from storage to computations as well, right? If you, I take the same analogy, it's like from HDFS, the storage layer to computational layer, you know, like Hadoop, right? And uh, I have also have, a, you know, have the feeling that, you know, I have been working on storage for three years and uh, it's really, a good time to for me to personally move into you know move up in the software stack to work on the computational layer and uh, and and also I think stream processing is actually very a very challenging uh, you know challenging topic. It has been under you know you know acad academia research literature for like twenty years, uh, but you know only recently in industry it has been gaining a very tremendous trend. For a lot of people have moving from you know large volume data set to you know pay attention to velocity of the data set how fast can i get you know my value from the the data that i collected so far right and uh, i think at, at the time back in you know uh 2015 that's the time where i think this it's a really good time and also the co-founders you know also think it's a good time and uh so that's why i started uh you know building kafka streams and now ksql db all right, cool. Yeah, I guess, you know, fundamentally there are there are two things. There's storage and there's computation. And well, you did storage, so time to move on to computation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and that makes sense. And it's I mean, it's it's a extremely important thing that that Kafka as a platform has grown. Um, and you know, an important set of capabilities that that uh, well, you know, that responded to circa 2015, you know, the the broader community of users is maturing and People, the kinds of things people on the leading edge are doing with Kafka, we're getting to the point where they were saying, hey, you know what? We really do need kind of our own compute here or our, yes. our own solution to compute. Right, right. Yeah, because back in the time, people are all like doing, you know, stream processing on top of Kafka, either in DIY, I think that is a majority of people, yep. or using some other uh, system like, you know, Storm, I think back at the time is the popular one that people are using. Uh, but I, I think that basically providing a fully integrated ecosystem, you know, with Kafka streams in, in the picture is actually, uh, you know, a must have that we have, uh, we, we, we need to do for, for the Kafka community. 
Exactly. And, and for those folks who were doing it DIY back then, I think it's time to cue the sad piano music because it really was uh, the thing that they had to do. You know, it was a, yeah. the only choice they could make at the time. But it's rough. As you know, being a core developer on this stuff, it's a lot of work to build this. And that's not something an application developer should have to take on in addition to his or her yes. primary duties. We should probably get rid of that sad music. I'm going to cry. Um, so <laughs> talk to us about some of the key ideas behind, mm -hmm. well, streams and case equal DB. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you, you already know what the difference is. Guajong, in case anybody is picking up with just this episode and they haven't heard, maybe quickly differentiate between Kafka streams and case equal DB. And just what are some fundamental architectural principles behind them that, mm -hmm. that you have access to as a, you know, a person who's driving the design? Sure. Um, uh, I think like the number one principle of Kafka streams and KSQL DB, because they are actually fully integrated with Kafka, I think is that to leverage the, you know, the persistence uh, characteristics of Kafka to its full extent in its architectural design. And by talking about that, I can give you some concrete examples. Uh, for example, uh, Kafka streams, aka the runtime of KSQL DB, use Kafka topics in both ways for to basically, you know, maintain the updates of the local streaming state stores, as well as using that as the, you know, basically the, the channels for doing data shuffling, right? Uh, but basically, you know, if you compare that with, you know, some of the other streaming engines, which are using, you know, in-network shuffling, uh, uh, depending on RPCs, we basically persist those shuffling data as well as, you know, change logs as Kafka topic as well. And uh, the main idea, again, behind that is, you know, to persist the data as long as you are doing that in the right way is not as expensive as you think. And actually, it also gives you a lot of, you know, benefits out, uh, by basically persisting those data. And one of them is what we have achieved uh, a couple of years ago to basically achieve the exactly once semantics. Uh, exactly once is a, basically like a processing guarantee, make, uh, making sure that your input data is only processed and their results in both the processing states as well as the annotate output is reflected exactly once, even if there is failures. And we actually are relying highly on basically the persisted data inside Kafka to basically achieve the exactly once um, you know, semantics. And I don't know how much I can tell because it's if I talk to you about the details, it maybe take another one, one hour to do that. Yes. But uh, you know, we are having a series of... Uh, you know, blog posts and some, you know, articles explaining why actually leveraging um, the persistence of, you know, data storage on Kafka actually can reduce this, you know, this semantics implementation and design to a simpler way uh, that we can actually achieve this uh, guarantee. Okay. Uh, we will include whatever of those blog posts are live by the time this episode goes live. Yeah. Um, we will include those in the show notes because that sounds like excellent extra yeah. reading. And I know we have, you know, maybe 15 more minutes to talk here. So yeah. unfortunately we can't dive into EOS. I would <laughs> love you to give us a good, um, a good account of that, but we'll also link to previous shows we've done on the topic. Uh, so great. Um, if you are interested, you can chase that down, but it's a, it's a good thing to understand how Kafka does it. Cause it's, you start to dig into it and, you know, you, you start to think, wait, uh, to do that, you'd need two-phase commit, and isn't that slow? And then uh, you look at the actual solutions Kafka uses, and you're like, oh, no, okay, they, they pull this off in a performant way. Um, the Hacker News told me that was impossible, but it turns out it, it isn't. 
Um, so you got to be careful what Hacker News tells you. Um, and so did you, uh, were you originally, uh, you originally were working on Kafka Streams before KSQLDB was even a thing. Uh, talk to us about that transition. Like what, mm -hmm. again, from a career perspective, why was that interesting to you? Mm -hmm. And then give us an idea of, of where the interesting technical challenges are for you as a, as a tech lead inside KSQLDB. Okay, for sure. Uh, I think to me, you know, Technical-wise, I would say that KSQLDB consider uh, its functionality and, of course, then its you know, incurred challenges as like a superset of Kafka streams. Uh, so KSQLDB provides you know, three different types of queries that you can, you can basically submit to. And one of them, which we call it the, you know, the persistent queries, is basically uh, compiled into Kafka streams. And, uh, and the main use case of that uh, can be categorized as, for example, like streaming ETLs, right? You have some of the input streams and you have some other, you know, database change logs. And you want to basically build a, a streaming ETL where you can, you know, clean up your data. You can, you know, modify your data. You can join those data in real time and uh, then dump the result streams or tables into, you know, different data warehousing engines for query serving, right? That is basically the main primary usage for the first type of KSQL DB. That is part of Kafka Streams. But then with the second and third types of queries, namely the push and the pull queries, we also allow KSQL DB to basically go beyond the capability of Kafka Streams to allow query serving. Uh, you can imagine that if you have those streaming states that is basically being aggregated from the input, we also basically allow those states to be queried in real time. And not only to query their current state, uh, potentially, users can also query their their past states, like in their in their historical snapshots as well, and this actually can enlarge the you know the use cases from, for example, like stream ETLs to different uh, other streaming use cases like monitoring, uh, real time dashboarding, anomaly detection, uh, things like that. So, I think if you ask me about like functionality, I would say that uh, KSQLDB definitely like enlarge the capability of Kafka streams in how people can actually interact with it and build their applications on top of it. All right. And yeah, that uh, query capability, the pull query capability in particular, kind of was, you know, it was a year, year and a few months ago as of, mm -hmm. as of the time of this recording. This, by the way, everyone, it's kind of early December at the time Guozhong and I are speaking. So September of 19, I want to say, we announced pull queries, which was a way to, from outside the KSQL DB server, interactively query uh, the results of a table, which kind of was a signal of, hey, you know, this is a thing for applications, not just for streaming ETL. Streaming ETL is mm -hmm. good, um, but it also is is venturing into streaming application type features as well. Yeah, totally. How about um, the KIP 500 stuff? Uh, this isn't so much streaming per se. I guess this is more of a core Kafka thing, but mm -hmm. uh, the Raft implementation that is merged as of right now, right? That, that's that, right. Yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, merged as of a few months ago, if I recall correctly. That's right. Um, how is that like and different, uh, you know, and let's, uh, we'll put a, a link in the notes to some good articles on Raft. Uh, Guozhong, I'm going to rely on you to tell me what you think the best <laughs> articles are, since you're the guest oh, today. <laughs> um, I think those should be the, the articles you like, plus the Wikipedia one. Um, but uh, how, how is Kafka's Raft uh, implementation similar to and different from what one would know if one knew the literature? Yeah. Uh, 
So uh, uh, I think you know there's a lot of in common from you know the literature uh, from academia. So I think maybe in here I will just maybe emphasize some of the differences that in we, we have in our design. Um, I think one of the main difference in our design compared with literature is that since we rely on Kafka logs as like the backbones for the rough implementation, and the Kafka's replication mechanism is based on the pool-based mechanism, meaning that the follower replica will proactively pull data from the leader instead of the push model where the leader will send those records to the follower. Uh, basically, that means that in this rough implementation, we also have to follow the pool-based replication mechanism, whereas in the literature, uh, basically, if you're looking to most of the, you know, the papers about rough implementation, they are based on pool-based, uh, sorry, push-based uh, uh, designs. And that difference actually can result in a lot of the, you know, uh, I would say devils in the details on how we basically still make sure that uh, the, you know, the whole design is correct and uh, in all kinds of edge cases. So if you ask me one main difference, I would say that this uh, push versus pull-based replication mechanism is the, the key difference that we have in our implementation. Okay, and it is push based. We uh, Kafka is push based. Sorry, uh, Kafka is pool based. Pool based. Literature okay. is push based. Yes. Okay. All right. I was going to say that that doesn't sound like how topics replicate. Topic replication yeah. is is pool based. So that makes yeah. sense. All right. I was going to drill into that, but now I'm okay. I don't have to. Um, yeah, and and that is a you know by itself a six or seven year old design decision yeah. that seems to be yeah working out fairly well. But also, I want to take this, um, you know, take this as an opportunity to, you know, you know, give our appreciation to a lot of the, you know, researchers in academia uh, from U.S. and U.K. who actually that have, you know, talked to us about the draft, you know, implementation, the state of the art research that can also actually nurture a lot in our own design. So yeah, thank you for, um, you know, I probably can't give the actual names because they are like a long list. But uh, you know, I just want to say. You know, uh, we are really grateful for all kinds of help that we get from the uh, from the academic and also from the from the industry as well. You know who you are, and we're standing on your shoulders, and we're explicitly acknowledging it. Yeah. Um, back to um, kind of the the you as distributed systems engineer. Um, imagine you're advising someone who wants to get into this line of work. Right? They think. Mm -hmm. Uh, this sounds like fun. I aspire to do this. It seems like the cool stuff. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like to create dichotomies in engineering. I think mm -hmm. building things is difficult pretty much no matter what you're building. Mm -hmm. um, we, we were talking about the difference between full stack engineers and, and distributed systems engineers and the, the problems mm -hmm. and, and difficulties in endemic to both. And they're all there. So it's not like this is the cool kind, but what, you know, some people think it is right. And they're like, mm -hmm. Hey, I want to get into that. Uh, what would you tell somebody? How what's what what steps should they take? Should mm -hmm. they get a PhD? Uh, how do they start? What's the? What's um, the I think I don't think getting a PhD is like necessary. <laughs> uh, it seems like uh, nobody with a computer science PhD <laughs> says, "Oh, definitely get a computer science PhD." <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, sorry, uh, um, Dr. Wong, I I interrupted <laughs> you. Go on. <laughs> uh, I think you know. Yeah, I have been thinking about that uh, also for a while. Um, maybe my answer is a little bit atypical. I think that, you know, if you really want to work in, you know, distributed systems, what project you work on is definitely very important. But who you work with is equally important, if not more important. Uh, that actually is 
what I'm thinking now uh, from my from my experience. Uh, I think to work with, you know, when I start my you know career after grad school, uh, to work with people like June, Neha, and Jay is actually a very lucky thing for me personally to be able to really you know quickly get familiar with you know the the with you know the current state of the art with the industry and get, get to know you know how you should think in terms of you know making design trade-offs and how you should actually you know communicate and hear other opinions in this in this area and how you actually find you know resources about uh, you know other approaches in the literature so I think you know, definitely like picking the, you know, the area or the project that you really, uh, you know, feel excited and you feel that, you know, professional satisfied is very important. But, you know, find the people you work with on a daily basis, which who can actually, you know, be your mentor and, uh, you know, like basically help you grow is, is equally important, at least um, when you start your career. So who you know above what you do. Um. I like it. I like it. Uh, of course, that poses its own challenge. You know, that's been a, a thing that you have you had at LinkedIn the ability to network with some folks who were true leaders in the space. Yeah. Um, if you well, didn't have access to them, what would be a way? Like, say, I don't have any super cool mentors. <laughs> what would be a way I could I could get, tip my get uh -huh. my toe in the water? Yeah, M maybe this sounds like an advertisement, but I would say you know people at Confluent today, uh, you know, especially you know. The, you know, all the engineers that, uh, you know, we, we work together, um, you know, actually not only Apache Kafka, but also on various, you know, open source or, you know, non-open source project at Confluent is, you know, I, I find myself very, you know, you know, grateful and very lucky to working with them, you know, on a daily basis as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, it sounds to me sounds like an advertisement, but I, I would say, you know, if you if you join Confluent uh, in, in your earlier uh, career stage, uh, I, I think you actually may already have a pretty good edge. This message brought to you by <laughs> Confluent Recruiting. Uh, <laughs> please see our open listings at confluent.io slash careers. Link yeah. in the show notes. Um, well, and, and, and it doesn't, I mean, it does not need to, yeah. you don't need to apologize for sounding like an advertisement because yeah. there might be people who want to do that. And, mm -hmm. and I, I even want to dig into that a little bit. So yeah. you're uh, an engineering lead, you interview engineers. Yeah. What do you look for? Um, I think I look for people who, um, you know, besides all the, you know, technical skills, right? I think I'm looking for people who can actually, you know, basically um, be good at how to basically incorporate, you know, feedbacks, how to incorporate suggestions from others. Um, I think that is actually the, the number one, uh, you know, non-technical, uh, you know, soft skills that I'm looking into from, you know, from the sessions I talk to the, talk to the candidate, you know, because, you know, I, at Confluent, you know, we have a lot of smart people, but I feel like more grateful to work with them is that, you know, people are really good at, you know, incorporating others' feedbacks, you know, because when you come to design distributed systems, right, uh, very unlikely that you will basically come to, a, come to agreement in your first try, you know, there will be different opinions on different trade-offs floating around. So how to actually, you know, address others' concerns and how to incorporate uh, their feedbacks uh, and basically, you know, come to the final uh, solution as I think that is actually very important. And uh, like I said, although like people, people at Confluent here, especially the one that I, I work with on a daily basis, are all very smart. I, I thought of them as also very good at, you know, 
taking others' opinions and uh, incorporate other feedbacks into your own, you know, into your own, you know, dri driving work. So I think that is the, you know, I would say the the qualities that I, I I'm lo I'm looking for from the candidates as well. I love it. So that that is a soft skill, the ability to give and take feedback and argue about things in a in a productive way. Uh, as I try to explain to people, you know, if ever talking to say a young person who's asking me, "Hey, should I should I get into software development?" And I'll say, "Well, you know, you it's mostly not programming, it's mostly arguing back and forth about what to name things forever until you retire or die." Um but, you know, so it, it's key that you be good at that, that you be an That's empathetic right. person, a humble person, uh, you know, somebody who wants to serve the people that they mm -hmm. work with and the team that they're on and yeah. not who thinks they're always right. Because, yep. um, you know, it, it, exactly. we have all yeah. worked with folks who are yes. exactly. uh, very in love with the fact that they're, they're right about everything. Yeah. I think, in, you know, especially in infra engineering, when you are building systems and you are building distributed systems, it's very unlikely to be a one-man show, right? Yeah, you know, building such systems always require, you know, a large, you know, group of people working together. Uh, uh, so that's why I think this 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 quality is very important for you to be successful in this uh, in this area. Yeah, seems to be some sort of metaphor there. We're, we're building systems that are composed of lots of pieces, lots of pieces working together, and we exactly. ourselves, in fact, have to be lots of pieces working together. Uh, and doing it in productive ways, um, yeah, ideally, exactly. ideally without having to tolerate too much, uh, to have too much Byzantine fault tolerance. It's kind of what you're saying. You'd like, <laughs> you'd, you'd like any failing nodes to be nodes that fail accidentally and not nodes that are intentionally trying to harm you. What are you, what are you looking forward to in the future? Uh, mm -hmm. the near term of what, what you can talk about in case equal DB or, or, mm -hmm. uh, what are some interesting challenges in front of you right now? Um, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of case DB, so the, 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 you know, intermediate challenges or the near-term challenges that we are trying to look into is, you know, basically improve on the operabilities of the system. I think this is like equally important, uh, to, for example, like providing new features or new functionalities of the system as well. You know, uh, when we are planning for, you know, for the near, near term, like the next quarter, the next half years, it's always come to, our, to come to my attention that uh, you know we may actually adding a lot of good features like we are adding like pool query capabilities we are adding you know like EOS uh, into into Kafka streams and KSQL DB uh, th those are very good but at the same time keeping the system easy to operate easy to maintain uh, including easy to deployment uh, for deployment easy for provisioning and when there's issues it's easier to troubleshoot to debug. That is also very important, uh, you know, in addition to, you know, providing new features and new functionalities. So I think coming to 2021, you know, improving on the operability and the usability of the, you know, KSQL DB system uh, is will be going to be one of the primary goals for the whole team and also for myself as well. My guest today has been Guazhong Wang. Guazhong, thanks for being a part of Streaming Audio. Thank you so much for having me here. Hey, you know what you get for listening to the end? Some free Confluent Cloud. Use the promo code 60PDCAST, that's 60PDCAST, to get an additional $60 of free Confluent Cloud usage. Be sure to activate it by December 31st, 2021, and use it within 90 days after activation. 
and any unused promo value on the expiration date will be forfeit, and there are a limited number of codes available, so don't miss out. Anyway, as always, I hope this podcast was helpful to you. If you want to discuss it or ask a question, you can always reach out to me at TLBergland on Twitter. That's T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video or reach out in our community Slack. There's a Slack sign-up link in the show notes if you'd like to join. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover us, which we think is a good thing. So thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.